Hola, mi amigos. How are we doing? Good? I love it. Let's do this right out of the shoots. Let's welcome all of our campuses this weekend. Let's welcome Evergreen and Lakewood and Arvada, of course, Littleton. And let's save our most gracious round of applause for all the men and women at God Behind Bars. Ladies and gentlemen, we love you so much. So much. So grateful that we get to worship with you every weekend, and we do not take it for granted. We just believe yet again this weekend, God behind those bars is going to do something so powerful in your guys' life. I want to do this. I don't do this often, but this is so fundamentally important to the life of our church that I want to do a quick sermon before the sermon. And the reason is, is next weekend, uh, October, not October, that would stink, uh, August... (laughs) August 28th, we're going to have at nine in the morning at our Littleton, our Arvada, and our Lakewood campus, we're going to have a life group leader training and orientation. Now, if you choose to show up to this, which I hope a bunch of you choose to show up to this, you are not signing your life away. You're not even necessarily saying that you're going to be a life group leader, but what you are saying is that you, maybe your spouse, or if you're single and going to lead one of those groups, amazing, that you guys are interested and that you want to hear more. And what I want to say to you as one of your pastors is we cannot be a healthy, functional, Christ-honoring church as we continue to grow and grow numerically if we don't get smaller and smaller as far as relationship and as far as community is concerned. One of the, uh, for all the blessings of a bigger church, one of the downsides is, is you can come here and you can hide, Right? You can come here, you can sneak in, you can get what you look for, and you can walk right out, and you forfeit this high calling we have as Christians not to go to church, but to what? To be the church, right? And for all of the service opportunities that we have at Red Rocks Church, all of them are important, and I don't want you to hear me saying that I'm devaluing the other service projects that you can get involved with, but what I want you to hear is this. There is nothing more important that you could do for the lifeblood and the health of this church than to lead a life group. There's nothing you could do that's gonna translate into more spiritual fruit for this church than if you were to open up your home, open up your heart, give some of your time away, give some of your passion away, and if you'll say, hey, I'm gonna pastor people. And I know when you hear me say that, you instantly, some of you get intimidated, especially if you're newer to church. Because you just heard me say the word pastor. And I want to say this. The minute you gave your life to Christ, you know what you became? The Bible calls you, this is a cool title, all right? Use it on your spouse or your girlfriend or whatever. But you're a royal priest. Do you understand that? You're not just a priest. That'd be cool enough, right? Like, well, maybe not. But anyways, you're a royal priest. Like you have the duty of what pastors do. You have the, you have the potential in you and the calling in you to pray for people to go to hospitals and pray for people to be healed, to, to read the Bible and to study together and to teach people what you're learning from the word of God. We all have that opportunity as New Testament Christ followers. That's the beauty of what we do. And so one of the things when I say you have an opportunity to pastor people, please don't be intimidated. Really what that means is you're gonna be hospitable. You're gonna open up your home. You're gonna sit around with people and you're gonna be extremely intentional about your guys' relationships with Christ. Life groups are here for a multitude of reasons. The ultimate one is that we want to make fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our ultimate goal, is that every one of you at every one of our campuses would be fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. It is not enough to meet 52 times a year and do what we're about to do this weekend. This, what we're about to do, is extremely important to the church. It matters. Don't don't hear me say that. But it is not enough. You You can coast off of this for a while, 
And eventually, if this is all you do as a member and a person of the body of Jesus Christ, you'll find yourself coming to church and, and you'll go from really enjoying it to over time starting to get a little more judgmental or cynical about it. And you'll think we've changed a bunch up, but if you've been here for very long, we don't change much up. What you're starting to feel is that God is calling you to the next level of investment in his church and in discipleship. And I can't think of a more incredible way to grow in your walk with God than if you would consider being a life group leader. It's one of the most rewarding, one of the most beautiful things that you will ever do. And listen, it's not convenient, especially on the front end. It can be a little intimidating. And this is what's so cool about these uh, life group leader trainings is they're going to show you that we are going out of our way to make this as simple and easy for you to lead as possible. We don't want you to get bogged down in all of the to-dos. We don't want you to get bogged down in too much prep work. What we want you to do when those life groups happen is we want you to be hospitable and we want you to be fully there, ready to minister and give your heart to people the way that Jesus did. That's it. That's what we want. And so next weekend... At three of our campuses, if you go to Evergreen or if you're a young adult life group leader, you can go to any of the other three campuses at nine in the morning and they're going to give you a full orientation. And if you go, hey, I like this, I'm in, then on September 11th, you're going to come back and get one more orientation so that you get ready for the fall semester. We good with that at every campus? We good? Now, I didn't answer a bunch of practical questions about that, but at your campuses, someone's going to come up at the end of service and they're going to tell you just a little bit more about what you can do to get all the answers you need. We great? Let's do this. You guys know this. I'm going to share my heart again unapologetically till we just know that we know that we know how true this is. This moment is again silly, is it not? Without the Holy Spirit lording over, without the Holy Spirit being in charge. You guys don't need to hear another message from me. This is week five of this series. I'm sick of hearing myself talk, right? Can you imagine being my wife? Having to put up with it. I, I don't want just another message from chat. You know what we want? We want the power of the Holy Spirit to come and to transform our lives from the inside out. So can we at all campuses, can we pray together for that? Heavenly Father, we just give you this time. And Father God, I pray in these next few minutes that your presence would be so beautiful in this place and at all of our campuses. Holy Spirit, that you would lead us into all truth, that you would guide us, that you would comfort us, that you would counsel us, that you would convict us where we need conviction, that you would ultimately, Holy Spirit, do what you do best, which is point to us the person of Jesus, amplify the person and work of Jesus in our hearts so we can go out of these doors this week and look and act and think and be more like him. And Jesus, it's in your awesome name we pray. Amen. So I don't know that there's too many things in life that are more exhausting to the human soul than this thing called hypocrisy. I'm serious. The older I get, uh, the more hypocrisy that I have not only walked in personally, but that I've experienced and seen from other people, not just inside the church, but outside of the church, the more I'm starting to realize that I don't think there's too many things more exhausting to your life, to your internal makeup than this constant duplicit nature that we were born with. Isn't it frustrating? I mean, let's be honest, the Bible says very explicitly that we were born into this world with a dual nature. We have this thing the New Testament calls our flesh, our sinful nature, but then we as believers have this thing called our spirit. And Paul says in Romans 7 that our flesh and our spirit are still, even though Jesus has conquered our flesh, they're still at odds. They're still at war with each other, right? Paul talks about hypocrisy in Romans 7. If you haven't, read it. It will bless your heart. 
This is arguably one of the most spiritual men to ever live. Paul had this natural grace to obey in ways that I can only dream of. He had this just white knuckle disciplined ability to observe and obey Torah in a way that if I was a good Jew back in the day, I just could have never done. And Paul, of all people, gets real honest about himself and writes about the duplicit nature of his own heart. And in Romans 7, he says this, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, he says the things that I want to do, I don't do. Can any of you guys relate to that? Any, oh, just me. Awesome. Great. What a gr- Come talk to me after service and tell me your secrets, right? No. We all know, we all know what that's like. Man, the things I really want to do, I end up doing the opposite. And he goes, the things that I don't want to do, those are the things I keep on doing, Right? And he says this, he uses this language, if you read it in detail, he says, he goes, there's a law. He goes, this is, this is as real as gravity is. This is as real as E equals MC squared. This is as real as two plus two equals four. He says, there's a law at work in the members of my body. Listen to the language, he says, waging war against my soul. And you know what he's talking about? Waging war against his soul, exhausting his soul. He's talking about hypocrisy. The things he wants to do, he doesn't do. And the things he doesn't want to do, he keeps on doing. And he sums it up by saying this. He goes, man, what a wretched man I am. You ever feel that way sometimes? You ever look at how amazingly Christian you were on Tuesday? And how unbelievably ungodly and backslidden you were on Wednesday? And you think to yourself, what a wretched person. What a hypocrite. I mean, we even have it in America down there in New Orleans. What do we have? We have Fat Tuesday followed up by what? Ash Wednesday. Tell me that's not the human heart right there. I'm going to get as drunk and debaucherous and gluttonous on Tuesday. And then I'm going to get really holy and put some ashes on my head on Wednesday. And then I'm going to start abstaining things until Easter when the big day comes, right? Like that's in our nature. We just know that at the depths of who we are, we are profoundly hypocritical people. That's why we come to church, right? One of the greatest reasons statistically that people don't come to church, they'll always say, is because the church is full of what? hypocrites and we need to shout back to the world you're absolutely right guilty is charged I am a hypocrite there is a dual nature now here's the good news theologically when you gave your life to Christ you know what the Bible says about that sin nature that's still battling against you it says you can count yourself dead to it it says you once were dead in the trespasses of your sin but when you were born again you what you became alive in Jesus Christ and so now that sin nature that's waging war against the members of your body and causing you to walk in hypocrisy it's this it, it's it's dead from the cross positionally but practically it's like a zombie it's like the walking dead it's still walking around trying to to infect you right And we sit under the weight of that all the time. And what I've tried to do in this series in Ephesians chapter one is just find new ways each week to shout to us this quote that I stole from my pastor friend down in Dallas. I'll say it again. God is not in love with a future version of you. Isn't that good news? And that's the good news of Ephesians. The minute you gave your life to Jesus Christ, you instantly inherited what we call birthrights. It wasn't after some vetting. It wasn't after God kind of watched you for a while to see what kind of kid you were, what kind of child you are in his kingdom. There was no vetting. He just, the minute you were born again by faith, you receive all of these amazing gifts from God. And I want to read them in Ephesians 1. We're going to read all 14 verses again. And I'm not doing this just for the sake of reading verses over and over and over. I'm doing this because all you great school teachers, you know the power of repetition, right? 
There's just something about repetition where finally a student one day, it may have been the 110th time, but one day they just finally come to school and get it, right? And it's because you were willing to repeat it over and over and over until finally it became a part of who they are. So we're going to read it again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, because Red Rocks, this is always God's only motivation. When you wonder how he could do something as radical and beautiful and gracious as this, those two words is, is why. It's in love. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, that'll be next week, which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to what? I want you to hear this language. This isn't my words. This is God's word, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And when I, when I recite these four birthrights, we'll get to the fifth one this weekend, but when I start to think about the fact that the minute I was born again, I was instantly given sainthood knowing the hypocrisy that I'm capable of in my soul. It, it blows me away. When I started thinking about the fact, we talked about it in week two, that before the foundations of the earth, God knowing every day, the end of my life from the beginning, right? Psalms 139 says that he's recorded every day of Chad in his book. And Chad's had some extremely dark, extremely sinful days in his 42 years of living. I gotta tell you, God knew all of that and he still said, let there be light. He still said, I want to make him in my image. And, and I start to think about the fact that we are holy right now and blameless for no other reason than Jesus on the cross was perfectly holy and blameless for us as our substitute. You understand that? I start to think about the fact that God predestined knowing how far his divine DNA would get away from our sinful DNA and would still adopt someone that looks so different than him, you and me. And he pre-planned it before the foundations of the world. I think about that. And you want to know what one of my first analytical and cynical sometimes thoughts is? I, I feel like God got duped. And he didn't. We know he's God. But I literally think about that. And I'm like, God, did you not read Art of the Deal by Mr. Donald J. Trump? Did you not read that book? Because every tenant in that book, God went against. He did the exact opposite. And this is not a political statement. Please don't write me if you're a Republican and go, oh, was that a slam on Donald Trump? No. No, if I did, you would know it, trust me, all right? So I'm just simply saying, I wonder to myself, did, did he read that book? Because when it comes to two parties getting a, a really good deal and walking out feeling like both parties, this, this is a completely one-sided deal that's totally in our favor. It couldn't be more lopsided. It couldn't be more fair, unfair. And when I really think about Ephesians 1, I, I honestly go, this seems irresponsible, God. Do you know the capacity we hypocrites have to take your grace and completely trample on it and abuse it and take it for granted and misuse it and misappropriate it and not walk in the worship because of it that you deserve? I know I'm guilty of that. 
And then I learned a really good lesson a couple weeks ago when I was in New York. We were at a conference and um, it was my wife and Sean's wife, Jill's birthday. And so we always do an August birthday tour. God be with us. And uh, we were in New York and, and I bought my wife a purse um, that she loves. Never thought she'd get it. And here's why. I can't afford it. <laughs> and I bought it for her. Right? And, and, and it, it was an exorbitant amount of money um, by my standards. Like my financial planner, when he hears this, he's going to call me in and go, let's do some quick math, Chad, okay? What do you do, right? And, And I paid an exorbitant amount for that purse because I just love Rachel. And I don't know what else to say. And I've always wanted her to have that purse. And I was tired of making excuses and all the noble reasons why I can't get that purse. And so I started doing all of these financial gymnastics. And I'm working on a second job. And I'm figuring out all these ways that I'm going to, you know, pay for this purse so that I can give her this purse just because I want to. I feel no pressure. She's never put one ounce of pressure on me to get her this purse. She's always told me she liked it, but never one ounce of pressure. My wife is not a materialistic person. That's not one of her great struggles, but I just wanted to get it for her. And so we walked into that store and I sweat a lot on my forehead while I was signing for it. (laughs) And I bought her that purse. And one of the things that I have learned about human nature is that we will begrudgingly pay for things we need And we will be exorbitant when it comes to paying for things we want and creative and passionate and irresponsible. Is that not true? But the difference between me getting Rachel that purse and Christ literally paying our ransom back to get us back to God on the cross is that he has a storehouse of riches that we were just told, not my word, we were just told he wants to do what? He wants to lavish it on you. And the minute you start to go, well, that is a completely awful deal, God. We are going to completely, in our hypocrisy and duplicity, we are going to trample on the grace that you paid such a high price for. Maybe not every day, maybe not every week, maybe not every season of life, but there's going to be these times where we just lose our minds and we make some horrible decisions. There's going to be some times where our lives look more like Fat Tuesday than Ash Wednesday, God, and you're, you're giving us this kind of lavish mercy And God goes, yeah. And here's what I want you to understand. The Bible says, we just read it, he did it with what? All wisdom and all insight. God goes, I've thought this through. I know the potential of the human heart to stray from me and to trample on my grace that is so good. And I still choose to lavish you. Every morning, my mercies are brand new. Why? What's the motive? Great is his faithfulness. Do you know Paul says to Timothy in one portion of scripture, even when we are faithless, God remains what? Faithful. Do you know his motive? He can't disown himself. He knows nothing else than faithfulness. It's like we always say God doesn't give you love. God is love, right? Well, you can say the same thing about faithfulness. God doesn't give you faithfulness. God just is faithfulness. He knows nothing else. For him to not be faithful, even when we're faithless, do you know what he would have to do? He would have to disown his own divine nature. And we know God cannot do that. God paid an exorbitant price that seems irresponsible and unfair. But know this, he knew exactly what he was doing. He did not get duped. And the reason he was willing to pay such an exorbitant price in his son, Jesus Christ, is because he wants you. He does not need you. Do you understand that? Someone at some campus needs to really be blessed by that. If God needed us and had to purchase us back, I don't think we have salvation the way we have salvation. 
I think if God needed us and we rebelled from him and he had to get us back, I think our religion would look like every other world religion on planet earth, which is you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You do this and I'll give you this. You perform this well and this will happen for you. You do all these things and you get this in the afterlife, right? But see, we serve the one true God who says, no, I don't need anything from you. You didn't complete me when I created you. I was wholeheartedly complete before I said, let there be light. God spoke us into existence, not because he needed us, but to magnify the glory of who he is. So he put image bears and he started to create things and says, these guys are going to display my glory. God loves you and he paid an exorbitant price that looks irresponsible. When we read Ephesians 1, some of you should have sat through this series with a bunch of yeah buts and a bit of discomfort because you hear these truths like I'm a saint. Do you know me? I'm, I'm chosen in, in spite of me as much as because of me. I'm holy and blameless and I didn't do anything. Christ did it for me. And you hear that and you go, really? And God goes, absolutely. And so now we finish with this fifth birthright and it's unbelievable. Listen to this, continuing in Ephesians 1. Paul says, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of what? What's it all about? His glory. In Jesus Christ, Red Rocks, you also, when you heard the word of truth, go back to when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, when you by faith accepted it, this is what he's saying. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you what? Believed in him. It doesn't say behaved in him. It says when you believed in him, you were instantaneously, and here's the fifth and final birthright, and this is beautiful. You were sealed. That's a strong term. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is, ready for another strong term, the guarantee of our inheritance until we what? Acquire full possession of it. Again, what's the motive? What's he say next? To the praise of what? His glory. He did all of this. If you're, if you're blown away by the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, just know this. The ultimate purpose that he paid such an exorbitant price for him was for his glory. That's what we're object of, his glory. That's why we bear his image, is to reflect his glory back to him and back to creation. And that's why he sent his son, Jesus, to pay the price for us. And he says, listen, this is such good news. The minute you gave your life to Jesus, Red Rocks, the minute you by faith heard the word of truth, it said, and then believed it, you were instantly sealed, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire full possession of it someday. Right now, we're in a long-distance relationship. Any of you ever been in a long-distance relationship? They're difficult, right? They're problematic. In some ways, they're extremely healthy. When Rachel and I got engaged, we parted ways. She went home out of the country, and I went to Missouri. Uh, she's in Alabama, and we uh, <laughs> had to do it. Every now and then, just got to do it. She's at home working, planning a wedding, chewing tobacco, you know, all this stuff. <laughs> Just typical stuff. I'm at home in Missouri and I'm working hard. We're saving money, planning a wedding, and we're talking. All we got is talking on the phone. And in some ways that was beautiful because it forced us to go deep and to just have nothing other than verbal communication. And that's extremely, especially for men, that's an extremely healthy thing. 
But over time, I started to see Rachel grow a little bit insecure in ways that I hadn't seen in the first year that we were together dating and engaged and all that stuff. There was a new degree of insecurity and I started to realize that it was just simply long distance. There was a physical, tangible separation. And all of a sudden, I I thought to myself, okay, I need to reassure her. I need to re-up so that she just knows that I'm hers and that I'm committed to this and I'm excited to get married. And so I did something that I would normally have never done because this wasn't my personality and not everybody in the world that was under 20 was doing this at the time, but I went and got a tattoo right here with her name on it. And it says Proverbs 31. Some of you know Proverbs 31. It's this chapter in the Old Testament about the characteristics of a godly woman. And and she was that to me. The reason I, I saw her and had love at first sight is because I had read Proverbs 31 over and over and over when I was single. And I did that. So eventually when I saw that woman walk by, I would know it and I would ask her to marry me. And that's Rachel and I's story. And so I wanted to commemorate that and I wanted to seal that. And I wanted to put it in ink that couldn't be taken away. There was no laser technology back when I got this thing. And I wanted to show her, and there was gonna be one weekend, our whole engagement, where she came to Missouri before our engagement. And I kept telling her for weeks, I'm like, I got a present for you and you're gonna love it. And it's awesome and it's incredible and I can't wait for you to see it. And she's thinking, Tiffany's bracelet. (laughs) Right, new pair of awesome boots. That purse, well, she wasn't thinking that at all. She knew how poor we were. She wasn't thinking that at all, right? But she's thinking all this stuff, and she gets here. We hang out for a little bit. I've got it hidden, and then I take her to the most romantic place on earth that I know of. It's a place in Springfield, Missouri called Andy's Frozen Custard, and I'm not lying. It's amazing. They just put one in in Denver. You're going to want to go there. Trust me. More to come. I take her to get ice cream and custard, and we're sitting there. And I go, are you ready for your gift? And I go, I'm so excited to show you. I mean, I bled for this thing, literally. (laughs) And I pull up the shirt. She goes, oh. (laughs) You got a tattoo? You? You know, and I'm not like, yeah, and I'm like, I'm like a poser. I'm like not tattoo guy. I go, yeah, and, and, and read what it says. And it says, Proverbs 31, and it says Rachel Elizabeth on there, right? And I'm excited. She goes, well, did you spell my name right? (laughs) No. No, I did, I did, I did. (laughs) It says your name and it says Proverbs 31 and I went through this like really horrible nervous speech and I'm more nervous now because I thought she would be like, oh my God, this is the single greatest thing any person could ever do for me in the history of the world. You sealed in blood us and said that we're forever, right? None of that. She just goes, really, a tattoo? She goes, you know that's forever, right? And I go, so are we. It didn't go real well. As we say, we're in counseling all the time, marriage counseling all the time. We're proud of it at this point. We're not even mad. We're not embarrassed. We're not ashamed. We're in counseling. We love it. I did that, though, to reestablish in her an insecurity because there was a long-distance relationship. And this is exactly, Red Rocks, why this birthright is the last one Paul mentions. It's the final thing. It's the final, hey, just in case you can't buy this sainthood thing because of some of the hypocrisy in your heart. And just in case you can't fathom how God could have chosen you when so many people in life didn't choose you. And just in faith, just in case you can't fathom that, that you're, you're literally holy and blameless simply because Christ did it in your place. 
And if you can't fathom that before the foundations of the world, no matter how far apart we got, no matter how different we started to look, I predestined to adopt you back to me and give you the full rights of an heir and a child. Just in case, I'm going to do this. I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit to continually, listen to me, and relentlessly reaffirm to you how much I love you and how committed I am to you. At the height of your hypocrisy, in the depths of your duplicity, God says, I am so relentlessly committed to you that I'm going to put my spirit in you to seal the fact of how I feel about you. And the Holy Spirit has been this gift we have been given, sent to us when Christ ascended back to heaven to just say, if nothing else, listen, I am fully committed to you. In the height of your rebellion, when when you're hot on fire for God and when you couldn't be more cold and backslidden, I am sealing you. It is amazing to me how we can preach that you can't be saved by anything other than what? Grace through faith, right? Ephesians 2 makes that abundantly clear. We are justified in God's eyes by only one thing, a gift, and it is his grace that we put our faith in, right? We all know that. That's gospel 101. But then all of a sudden, when you use language like sealed in the Holy Spirit, it's amazing how we can't do anything to earn our salvation, but we'll come up with 20 different ways biblically that we can lose it. And I'm like, is God that wishy-washy? Is God that unpowerful that he can't keep the gift that he gave us intact and he's going no you're going to need to know this many times over in life some of you at all of our campuses you walk in and he just wants you to know this today you are sealed in the holy spirit you can't out sin his seal And I know that's radical, and I know some of you are already in yeah, but mode, and you've got verses, and you've got theology to throw at me, and that's fine. I'm a big boy. You can do that, but but please understand this. When God says that you put by faith your, your trust in his grace, you are instantly sealed, and it is a guarantee. That is strong language. And God is not a man that he should lie. God is not a man that he goes back on his word. When you were sealed, you were sealed. Right? But we think about sin and we're, 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 we're so protective and this is a good thing. We're so protective that we don't, you know, trample on God's grace that we, we start to come up with all these theological reasons why that surely can't be. Why? To control people, to keep people scared, to keep, to keep people always wondering and in question about their salvation. And listen to me, that's no way to live. God knows that we're in a long distance relationship right now and he has gone out of his way via the Holy Spirit to say, listen, you can be secure You don't sin better than I seal is what God says. And you need to know that because there's going to be times where your spirit and your heart and your your life goes prodigal. And I'm going to be there waiting for you when you come back. And there's going to be a time where there's 99 sheep and one of them gets lost and God doesn't just wait for them to come back. You know what God aggressively does sometimes with us? He goes and he finds us and he picks us up and he puts us on his shoulders and he brings us back home. He bears the weight and brings us back home. That's my story. I didn't find God. God came and relentlessly found me and wooed me and forgave me and called me home. If I told you my full story... There's no question in my mind I was that lost sheep. He went and aggressively found me, put me on his back, and carried me home. That's how good of a God we serve. I think of King David when he committed adultery. You want to talk about hypocrisy. Do you know what he had just done 
for a long time before he committed adultery with his neighbor's wife. He won battle after battle after battle after battle in the name of who? Yahweh. He was God's man. Man after God's own heart. And then this Roman 7 law kicks in. And David has a really weak moment. And he disobeys God. He was supposed to go back to war and he stays home. Another sermon for another day. And he ends up committing adultery on his wife. And he sleeps with his neighbor friend's wife. He eventually gets rid of his old wife and marries that one. And he eventually has her husband killed in battle to get out of the mess. You want to talk about hypocrisy. This is one of the five-star generals in the kingdom of God who does this. And when David finally gets right and sees the error of his ways, God uses a friend of his named Jonathan, a prophet, to come and to call him on it. And David writes this just beautiful song of repentance called Psalms 51. You can read it in your Bible. And here's what David understands that I want us to understand. And I don't know how he knew this gospel truth, but he knew it when he wrote this song. He said, restore to me what? The joy of my salvation. Don't you think David, after committing murder and adultery and blatantly defying God's word for him to be out at battle and instead he stays home and makes a mess of his life. Don't you think if salvation was this wishy-washy, teeter-totter thing that you could just get into and get out of so easily, don't you think David would have wrote in his repentance, restore to me my salvation? But he doesn't because he understands. I don't know the grace he had to understand the gospel truth at that point, but he understands what we need to understand. It wasn't his salvation that he lost when he lost his morals. It was the joy of his salvation. See, we're not saved by works. We're not unsaved by works. We're sealed. But what's at stake when we talk about, hmm, stake. Sorry, I'm ADD. I just, hmm. I'm going to try and say it again with, and move. what's at stake when we talk and when we preach and when we crack open the word of God and we're on a section, we're preaching a series or a section that's talking about ethics and morals. We're not doing that to try and keep you saved. Do you know what we're fighting for? Your joy. Your peace. The love of God welling up on the inside of you. That's what we're fighting for. It's not salvation. It's the joy of your salvation that we're fighting for. And band, you guys can go ahead and come on out. Listen, when Paul writes this, about being sealed in the Holy Spirit, there's a hundred different theological implications that we could preach about. There's so many magnificent biblical things that come out of this idea that he's our promised Holy Spirit, the seal, the guarantee of our inheritance. But the one thing is I read Ephesians 1 every day this summer, over and over. You guys all right back there? (laughs) Medics, we good? All right. The one thing that God just kept just powerfully highlighting to me when I would read this fifth birthright was him simply saying this, and now I want to pass it on to you. How much am I for you to send you a Holy Spirit? Well, we have a long-distance relationship, which can create so much insecurity in our relationship and questions and fear and potential condemnation. How much is God for us to give us the Holy Spirit? It's not just that he seals and guarantees the fullness of our inheritance someday. Do you know what the Holy Spirit does right now? Tell me he's not for you. The Holy Spirit, John 14, 26 says, he teaches us. He's our teacher. Okay? He's not just our seal. He's not just our guarantee. He's our teacher right now. Why? Because God's not 
physically with us. What, what does uh, John 15 say? The Holy Spirit testifies to us about Christ. What's better than that? This Spirit of God that's constantly pushing us and affirming the person and the work of Christ. Number three, uh, he, the Holy Spirit convicts us personally and the whole world of sin. John 16, 18. If John 14's right, where Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, what can be more gracious to humanity than to convict the world of sin so the world has an opportunity to put their faith in Jesus Christ? And that's what the Holy Spirit does. Number four, the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 14 says, is who leads us. John 16, 13, the Holy Spirit reveals truth to us. Acts 9, 31, it says the Holy Spirit is both our strength and our encourager. Who doesn't need some encouraging all the time, right? We all do. We all want to be around that friend that is a great encourager, right? You have a friend that sticks closer than a brother in the Holy Spirit. He is the great encouragement. He's always prepared and ready to encourage you, not just when you're doing good and deserve it, but at the height of human hypocrisy, the Holy Spirit is so gentle and so faithful and so calm and so kind that while everybody else is judging you and hating you for some of your missteps and sins and mistakes, do you know what the Holy Spirit's doing if you will just allow him to? He's ready to encourage you and he's ready to counsel you. John 14, 16 says, the Holy Spirit, I love this because some of you, this is what you need, comforts us. Romans 8, 26 says this, he helps us in our weakness. How for you is God to send his spirit to relentlessly pursue you and to do all of these things that we want from spouses and friends and parents, right? Listen, we were given as a gift from God, spouses and parents and friends. All of those relationships are beautiful, but they're broken because we're all hypocrites. We're all human. We're all flawed. We're all fighting this internal battle up one minute, down the next. And what God's trying to say is, listen, those relationships are going to serve their purpose in life, but, but there should be no relationship you ever have in this life that is more consistent and powerful and that you are passionate about than the relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. He comforts us. He helps us in our weakness. Romans 8, 26 also said this. I love this. He intercedes for us. Don't, don't, don't we all want that friend that we know if we ask that they'll pray for us, we know they're going to pray for us. They're just good for it. You've got someone who is constantly and always interceding for you, whether you want it or not, whether you've deserved it or not, whether you've earned it or not. This is how much God is for you. This is God screaming from heaven. I know we're in a long distance relationship right now, but I am so for you that my spirit, if you will let him, is going to completely and fully take care of you until that, that wedding day. That party when we meet face to face again. Romans 15 says he sanctifies us. This might just be my favorite one. Romans 8, 16 says that he bears witness with us that we are sons and that we are daughters. That's the Holy Spirit that at the beginning of this service, I just prayed to and said, would you please be in charge? You don't need me, you don't need Chad, you don't need Sean, you don't need anything. You need the, we need the Holy Spirit, right? To Lord over this church, to Lord over our lives. Galatians 5.22 says, this is the personality of the Holy Spirit. We've all heard this, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Finish with a quote from a pastor I deeply respect. His name's John Piper. He says this, God is so passionately committed 
to having a people for his own possession who live forever for the praise of his glory, that he is not about to let our eternal destiny, listen to this, our eternal destiny depend on our own native powers or our own willing or doing. He commissions his Holy Spirit to enter our lives and to make us secure forever. I don't know what you walked in here with at any of our campuses at God Behind Bars. I don't know what you most need right now. Some of you, it's conviction. Some of you are living way more Fat Tuesday right now than Ash Wednesday. And the Holy Spirit in his grace wants to bring conviction to you this weekend. Some of you need comfort more than anything. I can't fathom what some of you are walking through right now. If we could hear some of the stories at Red Rocks Church right now, we would be blown away at what people are going through. It is God's passion to bring you comfort to bring you a peace that passes understanding, to bring you a joy that's unspeakable, undefinable, and full of his glory. And you don't have to earn it. You don't have to qualify for it. You don't have to go through a bunch of spiritual hoops and do a bunch of dances to get it. You just have to cry out to the Holy Spirit. He's ready and he's waiting and he's interceding for you. He's just waiting for you to say, Holy Spirit, I need comfort. I need conviction. I need help in my time of trouble. I need you to guide me into truth. I need wisdom that is so far beyond my years and my experience. Holy Spirit, would you guide me? Would you teach me? Some of you need this, the last thing I read. Some of you need him to bear witness that you are a son and you are a daughter of the king because for whatever reason, life has handed you so many difficult relationships and and things that you just can't fathom that he could actually, the God of the universe, call you son or daughter. And I'm here to tell you that's exactly what he wants to call you. And he's proud to call you that. I want to challenge us in this room right now. Whatever it is that you need at all of our campuses, the Holy Spirit is equipped to give it to you, but he's gentle and he will wait for you by faith to cry out in humility and ask. God wants to do some deeply healing things this weekend at Red Rocks Church purely because of the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And the only participation you need is to just look at God and say, would you please give me and then fill in the blank. Before I walk out of these doors, before we're done singing our last song, Holy Spirit, would you just please? And we honor his presence. We bring glory to his name. And you watch how relentlessly committed he is to your good. Everyone at every campus, if you guys would stand, we're gonna pray. Holy Spirit, as we begin to worship you in song, I just pray that you would do all this beautiful work that the Bible says you do. Those who need comfort, comfort. Those who need help, help. Those who need encouragement, encourage. Those who need strength, strengthen. Those who come in weak, let them see that you are their power. Most importantly, anyone at any campus that has never been sealed in the Holy Spirit, they've never accepted the free saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Holy Spirit, in this moment, would you save them? As they cry out to you and say, I want to know Jesus, would you convict their heart? Reveal to them their need for you, their need for Jesus? And would you save their soul? I ask this with every ounce of awe and respect I have, God. I ask that you would do these things in these next few minutes. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you do this at all campuses? Would you worship with such expectance and such awe right now?